Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, It is Monday. June 8th, and uh, we've got a lot going on uh, at college football programs all throughout the country. There are more tests coming out, and we are continuing to learn about more COVID protocols. Uh, There are more conversations being had. We've seen some activism from college football players and college football coaches as Black Lives Matters conversations and Black Lives Matters movements uh, have continued. Uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. And we also have uh, some of the most notable names in college football starting to get a little bit more heat on them and a spotlight on them in ways that are uncomfortable. And so as best as we can, um, we've also got strength of schedule discussions. Tom's been running a series on CBSSports.com and a mailbag question or two coming up by the end of this. So as we prepare to uh, sit here, uh, speak honestly with you, the listeners, and each other, gentlemen, how are we doing? I'm good. I'm wearing my uh, brand new East Carolina shirt. Came in the mail today. Oh, go Pirates. Uh, yeah, I'm wearing my uh, my brand new Buffalo Bulls hat. Uh, got geared up myself. Chip? I, I am wearing a green shirt, but it didn't come from USF. <laughs> I did it. I did not. Oh, get my it. shirt didn't come from ECU. This is, this is, you know, Tom's method of. Fighting. Yeah, but Barton, I'm still, I'm Barton still got what chip? No, I said Barton got the love. Like Barton yeah. got the school issued love. I mean, we well listen. Mm. I mean, the, 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 we're we at Buffalo are a family. <laughs> we are we. Anyone else that wants to join the Buffalo tribe, you are welcome in. Uh, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a good year for us. So it's not too late to jump on board because we're not going to let you on once we're already winning the MAC. Um, so you you guys, it looks it's not, it's not my fault that you guys haven't uh, haven't you know found that connection with your team because my, my team is just that we're a family that's just what we like it's okay uh jeff scott was too busy marching with his players in down, downtown tampa i'll be second place to that we'll be good <laughs> um all right well hey let's 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 start at iowa where in a situation not all that different at least situation from our perspective not all that different to florida state it is an evolving story that we knew we wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show but it wasn't until we've started to have developments even within the last hour or two which uh you know sort of advanced the story along and i think more than anything put a a big uh a big spotlight and a lot of attention on the iowa community itself but to recap in case you missed it Over the weekend, starting on Friday, strength and conditioning coach Chris Doyle, head coach Kirk Ferentz, uh, assistant coach Brian Ferentz, and the Iowa football program in general started. uh, There were allegations of mistreatment, racial mistreatment, and I think one thing that stood out to me from some of the tales from former players that were all just continuing to pile up on top of each other is uh, a picture was painted 
of an Iowa football program where black men did not feel comfortable in their own skin. A lot of talk about Iowa culture and the Iowa way that from the telling by these players felt a lot like coded language uh, with that was racially insensitive. Kirk Ferentz, to his uh, credit, reacted very swiftly, first issuing a video statement on Saturday evening. He said, you know, this is an important, potentially a defining moment in Iowa football history. You know, I'm going to take actions. Those actions included announcing an investigation into those allegations against Chris Doyle. Chris Doyle was placed on administrative leave. um, And, now we've got on Sunday a Zoom teleconference where he answered some of those questions. But I think in in something that is um, very significant to note here at the beginning, there have been team meetings of between the Iowa players and the and Kirk Ferentz involved on Monday today as they are getting back into the facility, and there has been some response from the players as well. So uh, Chris Doyle is one of the nation's highest paid strength and conditioning coaches. per year. 75 players have been drafted in Kirk Ferentz's 21 seasons. All of those 21 seasons have included Chris Doyle as the strength and conditioning coach, including 10 first round draft picks. Um, The, as, as the sort of the whole thing began to unfurl through the weekend for Iowa football, I, I thought it was interesting because Kirk Ferentz is so well-respected. I thought it was interesting because the, not only is Chris Doyle uh, highly paid and considered one of the better strength and conditioning coaches from the outside, we're also talking about a program that has just been constantly turning out pros and takes great pride in being able to say, we've got these two stars, we've got these three stars, and we develop them. Player development is the one thing that, not the one thing, but one thing you can put on Iowa football and that they do a great job of that there. And so... You look at those, you know, statistics about Iowa football, and it's easy for me on the outside, especially being a, a white guy on the outside, half a country away, to be like, I tell you what, that Iowa football culture, it's consistent. And I say words like that, and and then I hear these comments from former players. It makes me rethink, um, you know, what kind of steps I'm willing to take, and it has definitely had me reconsidering uh, how how much confidence I can always have in taking something like NFL draft picks and player development and, and tying that all together into thinking that the culture is great because below the surface behind the closed doors, it might not be. Um, I don't know. What, what, what were y'all's initial reactions uh, to this story? And then I guess we can move to the next part, which has been some really um, some, some very consistent messaging from the Iowa football players here in the last couple hours. Well, I, I thought that, <clears throat> I mean, it was, so Chris Doyle, like this is obviously a pod, this is a podcast where we are strength coach, friendly, uh, friendly strength coach aficionados. We are, uh, you know, if, if, if you listen to this, this pod, you've, you've heard some strength coach talk and Chris Doyle is arguably the best strength coach in college football. He's the highest paid strength coach in college football. He is. I would argue if if Iowa is a country and Kirk Ferentz is the president, that Chris Doyle is the vice president. I mean, I, I would I would argue that he probably looms largest within that program of anyone other than Kirk Ferentz. And so 
the I was struck by you know there's been some I don't know like there's there's been a couple posts here and there about a program that didn't teach treat their players properly or um, an incident here or there or you know there's another there's other instances we'll talk about but in terms of this Iowa deal it was sort of startling how consistently this avalanche of former black players came or black former players came forward to express how they felt like it's like 50 50 nearly 50 yeah every recent player is like crazy like you could like if you want to go through and get into like a rabbit hole of of like twitter you know you can find there's a couple iowa beat reporters who have retweeted a lot of this stuff and like some of this stuff is like stories on thread some of our, our notes app screenshots some of it are responses to other players from from t- former teammates like there's a deep long rabbit hole you can get into of a lot of anecdotes from Iowa and and individually I wouldn't say any one of them is is all that like any one of them standing alone would would be a little bit of a um, something that is kind of can chalk up to a, a bad moment a misunderstanding uh, you know a a sensitive player even it's just the the mountain of reaction from African American players at Iowa is has been really just jarring um, to the point where it's like there's clearly a problem. Like there's clearly something that needs to be addressed here. And there's clearly a, bl- a huge blind spot within that program. And there, there, there's, there's clearly like some, you know, pretty dramatic changes in, in approach that, that need to be made in order. If, if you ever want African Americans on that campus to feel comfortable. Um, and so I've just been, you know, I, I actually asked uh, asked a former player. I was like, you know, I always assumed. I was like, this Chris Steph's crazy. I just always assumed Doyle was beloved because he's so good. Um, sounds like that's not the case. And the response I got was, he's an outstanding strength coach. He's been a huge key to Iowa's success. I think Kirk is beloved. Doyle is revered. So mm. sounds like he's just. You know he's just a hard ass, and he, he has crossed the line uh, too many times, and and we got what we have now. Yeah, it's. I mean, it it was surprising in the sense that you know I I didn't think it's. I don't even know. It's. I can't say it's surprising simply because based on the way the world works, for this stuff to be happening or to be coming out shouldn't really surprise us about any school, any, any facet of American life in any part of the country. This, this is stuff that happens on a regular basis. And I think that, like you said, Barton with so many different players coming out with their own, you know, stories with varying degrees of severity, depending on how you want to look at it. It's really hard to deny that there's a clear feeling among former Iowa players about the way that, you know, Doyle acted and just within the program and the culture of the program. Because one of the things you have to consider is 
it's fine for like a program to have like a to have a culture and to have like a distinct set of rules, you know, like to have like a discipline of things you can and can't do. It's just, and I don't know the specifics of Iowa's program or so, all of these rules, but it's just sometimes when somebody talks about a player being professional or, you know, conducting yourself in a professional manner. So like they do things like saying, you know, well, you can't wear hats, which, okay, but then you can't have cornrows or dreadlocks. Well, how many white people do you know besides Cole McDonald have cornrows or dreadlocks mike norvell in his community college <laughs> picture <laughs> yes. yeah so when you put when you put like rules and stuff like that into place yeah where it's pretty clearly racially defined in what who who generally has cornrows or dreadlocks compared to who doesn't and then say it's professional you know for professional reasons that doesn't really jive with one another it's just kind of saying well no you can't do this and that only affects a certain portion of your team it doesn't really affect the white kids so it's like rules like that which might not seem racist to the people implementing them they might think that it's you know just it's a rule that they want within their program it's something they want a standard that they want met but like for some people from a different culture and a different background, that's, you know, like saying, you know, like telling a white guy that they can't put mayonnaise on your sandwich. We won't have mayonnaise <laughs> on our sandwiches in this program. It's so it's not like the, the thing about racism is that there's overt racism and then there's the kind of, you know, quieter, silenter, just really hard to discern that maybe it's not even really racist, but it's also kind of at a spot where it's not not racist. There's a kind of like that whole gray area where it's clearly going after one side while it leaves the white side pretty much untouched. So it's things like that, that, yeah, that's probably going to make a black kid uncomfortable when he's sitting there going into the going when he's at home in his dorm room or in his apartment and he's got like a hoodie on and a hat or he's got his hair, you know, cor in cornrows where he says to go to practice today, I have to redo my hair. I have to take this hoodie off. I have to, you know, take my hat off and I, then I can go. Whereas a lot of his white teammates just get to show up. So, and they don't have to worry about getting their hair cut a certain way or whatever. So I, it's, it's just that kind of thing where I think where if you look at the statement Doyle released on Sunday, where he says, you know, that they're, he says he's made mistakes and he's learned lessons like everybody else and he can do better. But then at the same time, it's like he's saying that he hasn't made comments and he doesn't tolerate and he doesn't have any unethical behavior bias. It's like, well, all right, I don't know that Chris Doyle is a racist and I'm not going to sit here and say any of that. But at some point, you can't say you're listening and then have 50 some odd players come out with stories like this that kind of say that, hey, these are maybe things that you're not considering. And also, to be clear, of these players that have come out, it's not like they're all out here demanding Chris Doyle be fired. Right. Or anybody be fired. They're just saying, hey, this is kind of how we feel about some of the rules that are in place. And we would like to maybe have a discussion about changing some of these things. So I don't know what the result of all this is going to be. I don't know what the result of the investigation is going to be. But I do think that in the long run, this is a good thing that the players are speaking out. And maybe now this conversation will be had. And maybe it will actually be listened to. But I also think the other good thing is it's not a coincidence that all the players that were doing this were former players because one of the things in Iowa's culture or in their program was you were not allowed to tweet. And that has changed. It was originally changed where they were going to be allowed one pre-approved tweet per month, which was just all right. To now, as we've seen on Monday, as they've returned to campus and all these things are happening, there's a lot of activity from Iowa players on social media. So that's clearly changed. So it's giving more of a voice. And 
I think that will be a good thing for the program in the long run. And I hope that like we're seeing in a lot of places and a lot of programs, the actions we've seen coaches take, whether it's marching or, you know, vocally supporting and publicly supporting their players and say, or, you know, like we've seen with Kirk Ferentz where he's said, you know, okay, I've heard the complaints. I've had the dialogues. We need to change. We need to change the culture within our program. And, you know, like he said that they're starting that, uh, that advisors, advisory committee that will be chaired by a former player and will consist of foreign, former and current players to figure out a way to go forward. These are all good things. And these are things that need to keep happening. And hopefully, while it's painful now, and it'll probably be pretty painful for a little while, as long as you keep going through this and taking these steps, it's going to become less painful and less painful the longer you go. And it's just going to become, you know, a new normal, which would could be, you know, a useful thing for everybody right now. Offensive lineman uh, Noah Fenske, redshirt freshman on the team, posting to Twitter a portion of his statement. When I joined this team last year, I expected to join an elite football team with talented players, but never in my life did I expect to join a team full of brave men who want nothing but positive change. I'll be honest, many tears rolled down my face during an hour and a half meeting of raw emotion and pain that we as players have felt during our short or long periods at Iowa. This program means so much to me and so much to so many of them. I'm thankful for every word that was expressed. We will get through this and there will be change. All I can ask from Hawk fans out there is if you don't support change that us Iowa football players are pushing for, go find yourself a new team to cheer for because this is far greater than football. I I, I am encouraged by the way that players now feel empowered in a program where former players said that they felt um, lesser than. I am uh, curious about what what this next step looks like for Iowa football. Do but the optimism in me says that they can lead in a really really big way for the entire state. Really, like truly, like for in the state of Iowa, as big as Iowa football is for the entire team to all be moving in lockstep. With Kirk Ferentz, uh, a part of it as well, I think that that is a a very, very powerful thing. Do you have uh, as much confidence that, you know, like you said, Tom, this is going to be painful. There are like, there's like pain with growth. Do you think that this is something where this is going to be like continuing to move forward? Do you anticipate the this can be impactful are iowa fans going to respond negatively i i'm i'm curious about what this how you all envision sort of the next step as this program tries to move forward um as far as the fans some will some won't and most will probably just go about their you know (laughs) go about their lives dealing with it uh i think that as far as optimism about it continuing i i don't know i think that at previous times, I probably would not have been optimistic at all. I think that in the current times we're in, like when was the last time we saw coaches even speaking out about this kind of stuff when issues were raised? Like when was the last time you saw college football coaches marching will, with their teams at protests? Will Muschamp registered his players to vote in South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. And so like when you see – the increased effort on behalf of a lot of people who at previous times, part of my language, didn't need to give a shit, who have started to give a shit, or at least showing that they do, 
maybe they maybe they did it behind the scenes, but now they're in a public spot where now they're being more you know public and forthright with what they believe and think. I think that is a good sign for going forward. Now, whether I'm optimistic this will continue once everything gets going back to normal again. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I would say that I think there's a far greater chance of it happening this time than in how many countless times before. Uh, the one thing that I thought was really interesting was like just the, you kind of, I think Chip you alluded to is like, it's a, the, the emotions that these guys feel towards Iowa football is very complex like they they're very disappointed they they really want change they really want to the experience to be different for players coming after them and yet there's there still is clearly a real pride in Iowa football and and having been there and having played there and and the the experience of Iowa football and, and so like it's going to be really interesting to me to see what comes of this um you know they like, like you said i don't think anyone is calling for chris Dole to be fired and yet feels like it may be hard not to uh i don't know what if this like what does it say about kirk ferentz's future like this feels a little bit mark d'antonio ish where it's just sort of the is the is the smell of this ever going to wear off even though no like kirk ferentz was more of a more of a like passive in terms of his um, like like uh, how much he is at fault here uh, and uh, in terms of like the way people frame the argument the the discussion from the outside um, but you know what where do we like even after Kirk Ferentz you know uh, there was some assumption that maybe Brian Ferentz would be the, the next head coach I, I don't like is is this sort of disqualify him from that because uh, his name was mentioned uh the i just think the whole discussion moving forward is going to be really interesting um i i also think and i wanted to bring this up did, did you guys y'all, so tom you read chris Doyle's statement which was yeah. like it was kind of it was kind of hilarious if if you're like so i started reading it oh this is interesting like kirk ferrant or uh, chris doyle is responding and he, and he starts out like first paragraph. He ends with, "I can only imagine how much courage it took for them to speak out on these on these serious matters. I'm proud of them." It's like, oh man, that's just, that's 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 a really thoughtful, thoughtful and like, you know, that, that's t- t- strong to say that. Uh, it saddens me to hear the stories of difficult experience while in the program. In addition to the outpouring of stories we were hearing across the country. Oh wow interesting it's time to listen learn and grow more importantly it's time for action oh man <laughs> and then record scratch <laughs> <laughs> and, and like this, this whole time I'm like god this is really big of him and to 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 accept fault and accept some blame and accept some self-critique here and then the next sentence is i've been asked to to remain silent but that is impossible for me to do so <laughs> and then it's like Oh wait a minute, where are we going next? And then the longest paragraph in the statement goes on to to say how he firmly denies all the the allegations of racism, and and I'm not even sure what he's owning up to by the end of it because he's he basically denies everything. And so 
that makes me think this doesn't just like that statement makes me feel like this isn't just sort of going to be a Florida State deal where they come out of this stronger, but this is going to be a, you know, Chris Doyle is a really good strength coach because he's a really stubborn guy and he's he, it's a his way or the highway guy. And I don't know if that's going to be the approach that helps this come to a productive conclusion. That last paragraph is as long as the first three thoughtful ones. <laughs> he just, he had everything good. And then he just hit that accelerator and he couldn't stop it. Um, I, I think that if, and this is again, this is just my guess. These are just our observations. I would guess that yes, this week for Iowa football has been significant enough such that it is going to make is going to make it hard for harder for Brian Ferentz to just take over and step on up into the big chair. I think that uh, whether Chris Doyle loses his job or not, I hope is up to the Iowa players, and I hope that the Iowa players are the ones who are letting Kirk Ferentz know whether or not they are going to be comfortable in a strength program led by Chris Doyle. Because if I'm Kirk Ferentz, the decision of whether or not to continue with Chris Doyle as my strength and conditioning coach really should come down to his connection with the players. Strength coaches are such an ever-present part of um, the college football player's life that if I think that the strength and conditioning, the current strength and conditioning coach is making things uncomfortable and making it impossible for the young men within my program to be uh, successful and grow, well, then I, I think that you've got to, you just got to make a change there. And while I do think that Kirk Ferentz, whether that I do think this impacts Kirk Ferentz's reputation, but I don't know if this is going to be like a, a job costing uh, issue for him, mostly because of his action to very, very quickly step in, Turn over the turn over the responsibility and, and allow for sort of the team to to take charge of the conversation. Yeah, I, I, like I thought, Kirk Ferentz's response was pretty pretty productive. Like I thought it was a pretty, and I kind of buy. I mean, I buy it. I, I think like Kirk Ferentz, the right tones. Yeah, I, and I think it's it's I think it's understandable. Like that's that's the whole point of this entire national narrative and national conversation is the idea that people have blind spots, people don't know what prejudices they have. I, I don't think Kirk Ferentz has. I, I, I don't know Kirk Ferentz, but I suspect he doesn't have. He's not racist. I suspect that he is. He probably did not realize how sort of culturally insensitive or prejudice some of the 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 rules and undertones of the program were and maybe even didn't quite realize how difficult it is for a black guy from Chicago to come to Iowa City where there's a, a campus of of white kids and and like some of those things probably just you know the the compromises he's willing to make in terms of the control over his program from an old school perspective don't mesh with the idea of like really dialing in to the the needs of like each individual player and and not just being a you know a conformist team and so I, I think the idea I think this is probably a wake up call for him that he needed and probably in a lot of ways appreciates and so I think that there's a there's you know 
could be real change at Iowa. Like one thing that's always struck me, like there's an idea that like, you know, you hear the, what huddle up, like uh, we shall, America should be more like a football team, you know, cause everyone just gets along and we all are part of one team and everything. It's like, I think the thing that's missing there is like there, there's a reason why all these people from different backgrounds are able to, to, to unite together and, and be a team and, and have great relationships and bonds. It's because of the shared experience of going through two a days of training together, of being held accountable by hard nosed coaches and all those sort of things. And so you hear these bonds that these Iowa guys have made and they love Iowa because they love the players they played with. And I think what, what's missing on that is the, if, if the coach isn't sort of sharing in that empathy and sharing in, in, in the experience in, in some way too, like there's a missing piece there. So like, you know, America, you know, to get this, I hope this isn't too like, you know, non-football, but like, yeah, like the America isn't like a football team until people have a shared experience, until people have shared empathy and people, people understand each other's circumstances. So I think this is an, like a situation where Kirk Ferentz, the Iowa football staff is, is getting some much needed insight into what these other experiences were and are, and, and now perhaps they can have the empathy to, to make some changes. America is an apartment and we are all Craigslist roommates. We got to figure out how to live together. Um, all right. Utah defensive coordinator, Morgan Scally, Scaly, which one? I've always pronounced it Scaly. I can't say for sure. I think it's Scaly. Uh, he has been suspended immediately. There is an impending investigation outsourced to an outside firm after uh, he has been the subject of, in a, a similar way, a, a cascade of statements, tweets, social media posts, uh, alleging um, the discomfort environment that he has created. There is one specific allegation that includes uh, the use of the N-word after a recruiting trip, speaking uh, about a recruiting trip to Texas or trying to recruit some Texas high school football players to come play for Utah that was accidentally sent to somebody else uh, when it was intended for being sent to another assistant coach. Now, Morgan Scally has come out and he has made an apologement. Yeah, he has apologized. Uh, he has asked for... Um, He's asked to be allowed for to have some growth and to have some improvement in his life. He said, "I am truly sorry, and I own up to a and I own up to the hurtful effects of my choice. Though my actions and words going through my actions and words going forward, I will demonstrate that my use of that slur in 2013 does not reflect or define who I am or what I stand for. My action is indefensible, and I will use my voice and position to bring meaningful and much needed change." There are players from Utah football during his time with the program that have very positive things to say about Morgan Scally, but yet he remains suspended right now. And as you know, he has through his statements indicated uh, much reg regret for what has happened and the the willingness to be a part of change moving forward. It it kind of becomes a question. It becomes a question for Kyle Whittingham. It becomes a question for Utah football of whether or not to move forward with the head coach, who, by the way, has been recognized by the Broyles Award uh, as a finalist for the award. And has he won it too? 
He's he is recognized as one of the top defensive coordinators in the country. We've talked about Utah football, the identity of and he's Utah widely football. considered the head coach in waiting. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. very, very, very valid point here. So, you know, does does this change that? Does uh, this become another example of how you can look back at your past actions, ask for apology, uh, learn, improve, and move forward? You know, what? How does this example from the weekend? Uh, sort of resonate with you as as we're moving forward into this week? Well, first of all, this is like, so A, he broke the the cover three number one rule, which is cover three podcast number one rule, which is if you don't want to get caught doing racist stuff, just don't be a racist. I mean, that's it. That was, we have, that was what, months ago? Years ago, <laughs> years ago, we instituted we that instituted rule. that rule. It's like if you don't want to be alleged to be a racist, don't be a racist. Yes, like Number don't one be a rule. racist on Snapchat. Don't be a racist on text message. Don't be racist in email. Don't be racist in person. Just don't be a racist. And if you are texting people the n word, that is racist. And <laughs> like that's it's a really like if you don't want to get in trouble for text seven years ago, then don't text racist stuff. And so like, that's the first mistake that he made. And that is like, it is seven years ago. Like that's a, that's can be a slippery slope. Oh, man, like, but, but this isn't like digging up texts from when he was 13. Like he was a, he was a grown man. And that's a, like, this is pr- like, this is really serious and, and, and kind of crazy that someone would, that he would do that. It's, it's just like kind of mind blowing. Um, and yet, like in in his defense, like there have been a lot of players that have come forward and said that's really disappointing he did that. But there's this guy is not a racist. I know him. Yeah, like he's he's he peer, like there's there, there's been some guys that have said like yeah he's you know there's been some some things he said that are make you a little bit uncomfortable. But there's a lot of guys that are that that have have really come forward and said say they love him. Um, my thing is. Like, I don't, I'm not, I mean, my biggest takeaway, I guess, is that you, you know, above all else, if this guy was supposed to be a head coach in waiting and I'm big on head coaches, like above all else, all the other factors, like intelligence should be there first. If this guy is that stupid to be texting people that, even if he was, whenever it was, 30 two years old or whatever it was seven years ago, that's, that that's inexcusable. Like, I just don't know how you can make a guy like that, your head coach, like that's not even getting to the, the actual racism side of it. And so, uh, that's just like, like, again, like this is a guy that was sort of on top of like he, his star was firmly on the rise. He's been a coordinator like four years, bros finalist in 2019 and a guy that is looking like a future head coach at Utah. And, that stuff probably should be, frankly, out the window if he's out there talking like this, even if it was seven years ago. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to really add to it other than it's kind of like you said, rule one. It, the easiest way to not get caught doing racist things is to just not be racist in the first place. And whether, again, it was seven years ago, maybe he's changed, maybe he's learned, maybe he's picked up a lot of things and maybe he realizes what he did was just a horrible mistake and it's not really a reflection of who he is and based on what a lot of players and former players have said about him, that could very well be the case. But the fact that you did it and you 
whether it's seven years later or not, these steps that Utah have taken since finding out are the correct steps to take. And it will very much likely have an impact on his coaching, you know, future, whether at Utah or anywhere else. So you do stuff and you deal with it. You got to live with the consequences and he's living with the consequences right now. Be pretty crazy if this thing clipped uh, Chris Doyle and Morgan Scally in one week. Um, just shocking. Is it? Uh, all right, I'm, I'm just I'm wandering out. I got no notes prepared on this. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's a work in theory. Feel free. Feel free to push back on this one. But is this the at least the way that it's cascading? Uh, almost. Uh, like the way the way that it's cascading, the way that there's uh, more of a conversation, the way that you know all of this is sort of coming up to light, and hopefully, much like a raw wound, the fresh air and light will help create real healing. But for the for it to be racially tied to college football, I think that college football becomes a place where this is very obvious because of uh, the disparate. Uh, representation at the coaching level, especially at the head coaching level, compared to the sport itself uh, with the makeup of black athletes as players and predominantly white head coaches. You know, for that to be something that's coming up, it's it's almost like in a way when Hollywood was dealing with its sexual violence, when was uh, Time's Up? When did this, when did that really start? Was that maybe 17? 2015, 2016-ish during, I think, the last presidential election. And it was like executive, executive, actor, actor. And you'd hope that on the other side of the, I mean, I'm not, I've, I, ain't, I ain't Hollywood in case you can't tell. Uh, but like you would hope that on the other side of that kind of a reckoning within an industry that there would be a better environment for those that had been oppressed, those who had been preyed on uh, in in terms of sexual violence. And I would hope that with this kind of reckoning within college football at the racial level, that there is the opportunity to come out on the other side. And if it if it is going to follow the same path, then this is probably not just going to be um, Chris Doyle and Morgan Scally. I I think that we it would be worth at least preparing yourself that we're going to have some more stories continue to come to light. Oh, yeah. It's going to be just like every day we're seeing, oh, this school had this many players test positive for COVID-19. You know, it's there's more coming. It's not like this is these are isolated incidents. I mean, just look at the country as a whole. So to pretend that it only happened at a few schools and has only been happening at a couple of schools and no, we got them now. Woo. We can move on and be happy. That's just, no, we're going to see a lot more. Sorry for stumbling over that. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're just like talking out loud here, right? No. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, and part of it too is like you mentioned the things you mentioned behind it that lead to it with like the predominantly white coaches and predominantly black players. There's also the power imbalance, which is the same thing as what we saw in Hollywood. Any, in any situation, in any walk of life, when there is a huge imbalance between who's in charge and who's not, as far as that, there's going to be abuses of it. That's been the case throughout the history of, you know, our entire species. So no, it's, it's just more things are now coming to light and we're in an environment where people feel safer doing this because a lot of the problem has been like 
going and I don't want to, but to go back to like at Iowa, like we mentioned with Doyle being the strength and conditioning coach, they're making $800,000 a year, probably being the second most important person in that program beside Kirk Ferentz. Let's be realistic about why more players go to Iowa. The players that are going to Iowa aren't going there to win big 10 titles. They're not going there to compete for national titles. They're not going there, you know, to just, they're going there because Iowa has a proven track record of taking players, developing them, and putting them in the NFL. So by simply choosing to go to Iowa, the player is already in a, a on the wrong side of a power dynamic with the strength and conditioning coach who is going to be the one who's very much responsible for taking their talent and molding them into NFL players and giving them that chance. So they're going to have to, you know, it, when you're in a position like that, you're going to have to deal with some crap or you might be more willing to deal with some crap just because you're looking at the, you know, ends justifying the means or whatever. But now we are in an environment where maybe we're starting to realize, hey, you know what? I I don't have to put up with that. Mm-hmm. That person could still, you know, help me and then not be a total a-hole to me or not be insensitive to me. And I, I'm not trying to point out Doyle specifically. I'm just using that as an example of this kind of situation where these players are in where they're not really in charge. They don't really have the voice. They're there. They can have their scholarship taken away. They can have their playing time taken away. They can have their future taken away. So they're not really in a position where they can feel comfortable speaking up when they feel like something is wrong or going against them. And this is at any school in the country. So maybe that's what we're seeing now with players feeling more empowered to express their thoughts and feelings. Maybe that's what's going to, you know, that is what is leading to this. And that's why it's not going to stop at Utah nor at Iowa or anywhere else that we've seen so far in the last week and a half or so, This is going to be something that continues for a while. And it's, it's like an infection. Some of them take a lot longer to get out. We did. Oh, go ahead, Barton. Nothing. I mean, I just, it, it boils back to me. It boils back down to, like my theory that being a good human is going to be incentivized by coaches all of a sudden. Like it used to be like disincentivized to be a good human, just like the harder, you, the, the bigger hard ass you can be, the better, more disciplined your team is. But I just think in today's climate, like the, the coaches that are going to have successful are the coaches that are going to have a more holistic approach to their program in the turn, in the sense of like having relationships, understanding where people are having issues, understanding why not doesn't mean not holding them accountable or being a disciplined program, but being, you know, in a, in a space where, you know, you, you, you don't demean like, and, and you don't, and, and you are, if a guy is, is having a rough week, like the coach understands why and understands where that comes from and understands what his family life is and, and understands what's going on in his personal life. And like, that's a, that's a, that's a lot to take on as a, as a coach, but I think the ones that can do that staff wide are, are, are going to begin to be the programs that are the most successful on the field. Speaking of the modern coach, we saw over the weekend, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure many of you all saw that many coaches joined their players in participating in uh, Black Lives Matters protest, Black Lives Matters uh, marches, walks, many of them around campus, of course, as many of them are returning to campus with voluntary activities allowed uh, by the NCAA June 1 and by many conferences and prominent programs starting today, June 8th. Uh, coaches that uh, I saw included Kentucky's Mark Stoops, Texas's Tom Herman, Michigan's Jim Harbaugh, Missouri's Eli Drinkwitz, 
Tennessee's Jeremy Pruitt, Ole Miss's Lane Kiffin, South Carolina's Will Muschamp, uh, and there are many more. They were out there wearing their mask. They were marching with their teammates. Some of them, uh, you know, like seeing Jim Harbaugh out there was not a surprise. I might be close-minded because when I saw Jeremy Pruitt, I was surprised. But an interesting twist to this is that his players didn't even know that he was going to be there. This was a very Jeremy Pruitt, um, you know, stand standing up and doing something on his own and just showing up, and it had a really, really impactful. It was very, very impactful on his players who told the athletic uh, about his participation in the protest that you know it backed up the message that Jeremy Pruitt had been sending to the team uh, in the wake of all these protests across the country. Uh, This quote says, we can always talk about ball, 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 but Coach Pruitt's mindset is, let's talk about the issue at hand. No, we're here for you. The whole staff is here for you. There's no judgment. You can come talk to me at any time. And Coach Pruitt showed us that. Coming out here today puts an exclamation point on it. Seeing Coach Pruitt come out and walk with us. There is doing, there's like trying to take an action for PR stance, but you talk about communication with a player and trying to uh, let them know that you are not just going to be this distant authority figure, but rather somebody who's going to be an active participant in your life. I thought that the actions of Jeremy Pruitt and many others across the country uh, set a very, um, I mean, I, it was impactful for me to see because it, we've come a long way. So Will Muschamp on election day in 2016, acting like he didn't know what day it was, Four years later, he's at a Black Lives Matters protest, marching with his players and leading many of them uh, to go and register to vote. I I thought that it was in the, across the college football world um, and it, a fascinating weekend in terms of head coaches. Great. I, I, real quick, I pulled up the tweet from 2018 uh, from Josh Kendall of the Athletic. Me to Will Muschamp. Quote: How have you dressed your How have you dressed voting with your team, Muschamp? No response. Me, quote, you know there's an election today. Must champ. I do now. I'm getting ready for Florida. <laughs> now he's now he's now he's registering voters. Good for Will. <laughs> I mean, it's it's great. It's a great thing to see, and it's an awesome. And as I said in the la- last week's episode, this is great. But you got to keep doing it, man. And I was I was very happy to see Pruitt doing it because you know I I was surprised to see Pruitt do it and based on what you just mentioned finding out Will Muschamp is lighting up his players to vote was like really he knows what election day is this year so it's like of course I didn't know that I when he said it a couple years ago I don't know that I actually believed when he said it but it was just it was it's good to see it's if you could just put aside the politics behind it a lot of the crap that the divisive crap that you'll hear about a certain any movement, whether whatever your feelings or thoughts are on anything. At the end of the day, a coach is supposed to be a leader. And football coaches in college are helping mold young people. And like Dabo caught a lot of crap over the weekend for that football matter shirt, which a lot of people turned into something that it wasn't, even if it was kind of a tone deaf thing to be wearing at the time. And I could see why people would have that reaction. The reaction to it was really overbearing. But when you're 
football does matter in the sense that being in a team matters for, you know, anybody in life. Being working with other people, like you mentioned earlier, Barton, where America is not a football team, but we need to work towards being a team. And it's things like this, being in that kind of environment with, you know, your peers and with, you know, elders and anybody where you have one unifying goal of all working together and working together to achieve that goal. So if you just look at it from that aspect of what a coach is meant to do and don't look at it from whatever, you know, you read the media that you follow or the news that you follow or the politicians you follow or whoever you vote or whoever you want to feel about one specific thing, push all that to the side and just look at it in the vacuum of a coach leading his team in a unified goal, maybe putting aside his own beliefs or his own thoughts on certain things about what they think, and instead saying, this is what my players need, this is what my players want, I'm going to listen to them and be there for them. That's exactly what a coach is supposed to do, not just in football, but in life. So to see a bunch of coaches doing this when in previous years, like with that whole answer where it was, Muschamp was being, I don't even know it's election day, all I care about is this week's game, where it's it's they've taken the stuff where you know it's it's about more than football football matters but it's supposed to help it's supposed to help the players in life after football because most of these kids aren't going to be playing football for a living and even the ones who do for a while are going to have a long life once football's over so the values that you're trying to instill in players I feel like what Will Muschamp, Jeremy Pruitt and all these other coaches have done who have taken these steps is going to have a far greater impact on their players in the rest of their lives than beating Florida on Saturday ever would. You're here. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Barton. Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I agree. I think this is, like I said, I think this is all positive. I mean, coaches are going to be forced to treat these kids like human beings more so and um and that means you know being engaged in the things a lot more outside of the scope of, of of football of actual x's and o's and so that's a good thing i think that that's that's you know that's positive coming up on the other side who's got the easiest who's got the hardest schedule in the entire country tom's gonna let us know next Welcome to the Nothing Personal with David Sampson podcast. Do me a favor and blink, please. Did you blink? That's how fast the Major League Baseball season went in 2020. The postseason is already upon us. Whether it's baseball news, you want NFL, college football, water polo, chess, movies. If there's a story, we'll have it covered every weekday, five days a week. Just subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever else you find your podcasts. No BS, no soft tosses, no hot takes. You know, it's always business. It's nothing personal. Two 
majors down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open. Can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Himmelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found. On CBSSports.com, uh, this week and last week, you have noticed because you've been reading all of them. You follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. Tom has. Well, there's one you haven't read. Okay. Well, because it hasn't come out yet. No, no. I mean, of the ones that have been published, there's one that wasn't well read. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, are, we, are we allowed to say that? Maybe at the end of the season, I'll tell. We'll, we'll tell yeah. y'all which one. Yeah. No, but, no, but there's one Power Five conference where apparently nobody's concerned about strength of schedule. And I'll give you a hint. It's the one Power Five conference that's the easiest to predict. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Tom, first, the and you do describe this a little bit in your in the context of the posts in your lead-in, sort of the way that you go about this process, like the process which we trust. Um, it is very driven by your numbers and uh, by the system, which then allow it produces some, some facts and stats that we can use to rank strength of schedule. So please uh, give us a peek under the hood. Uh, listeners will know and anybody who's been reading know that I have done my rankings every year for since I started at CBS, even a little bit before it, although I don't have those old records, but my rating system has always been used. It's not predictive. It's reactive. It takes what teams do on a weekly basis, writes them. I keep track of those. And history is the best predictor of the future nine times out of ten. So when it comes to projecting the SOS, I look at how the teams have done in my rating system in previous years. And then I break that down as to like the whole, you know, the whole enchilada. And then into five-year segments, three-year segments, and one-year segments. And I weight them all differently. And... I then use those weights to come up with a weight per team. Like, obviously, Alabama has the heaviest weight based on the last decade and everything. It's it's the number one team, and then it's followed right behind by Clemson and Ohio State. And then there are the teams on the other end of that. Because since Alabama has been great for the last decade, odds are it's going to be pretty good in the upcoming season as well. And a team that's been horrible in the last decade is probably going to be horrible again in the next season. So you put all that. I put it into a formula pretty much where you, I just, well, it's not even a formula, really. I just add up these numbers for the most part, and then I add on other specific weights like is the game at home, is the game on the road, is it after a bye, is it like the eighth straight week you've been playing, and you just add these little things to it, and then I divide that up by the amount of games, and I get a number. And then I take that number, and I compare it to the average number of all 130 teams, and I get a score which basically reflects how much stronger or how much weaker that projection is compared to the average projection. So with the entire, uh, with the, with the entire nation sorted, do you have a strongest or do you have a toughest schedule in the entire country? 
Yes, the, the most difficult projected, again, I feel like that part is always missed out by a lot of people. It doesn't mean definite, but the projected is Colorado, which has a score that is 39.19% higher than the average score. And the reason for this is if you look at their schedule, their worst game might be their first their season opener, which even that one is on the road against Colorado State, which is not a great team, but it's not exactly... You know, it's been a strong group of five team at times in the last decade. It carries certain weight. Then it's got Fresno State, and then the Power Five schedule starts because 10 of the remaining 12 games are against Power Five teams. They get Texas A&M on the road, Oregon, at Arizona, UCLA, Arizona State. But then there's at USC, Wazoo, at Stanford, at Washington, Utah. They don't miss a single contender in the Pac-12. Dang. They're playing Oregon. They're playing USC. They're playing Washington. They're playing Utah. And then Wazoo and Stanford still carry some weight. You can argue that their worst game might actually be that UCLA home game as far as weight is concerned. But when you add all that up together, there aren't a lot of other schools that have 10 Power 5 opponents, or at least like that, where without an FCS opponent. And that's the thing. Colorado has 10 Power 5 opponents and two Group of 5 opponents, but in Fresno State and Colorado State, it has two respectable Group of 5 opponents. It's not like it's playing, you know, UTEP or somebody. It's not playing a pushover. But I also want to point out that Colorado and other schools like Colorado are at a bit of an advantage in the projections because Colorado's got the highest-ranked schedule in the Pac-12. Obviously, it's got the highest-ranked schedule in the country. USC is second in the Pac-12, but it's fourth overall. But the difference is... USC's schedule overall is very similar to Colorado's, except, you know, you could say it plays Notre Dame, which carries more weight than anybody that Colorado's playing on its schedule. The difference is Colorado plays USC and USC plays Colorado. (laughs) So Colorado gets to add that USC weight to its schedule where USC doesn't. It's adding Colorado in its place. And that, in the end, pushes it back, which is why every year when I do this, it's it's most evident in certain situations, like in the ACC, Clemson's got no chance of having the highest projected difficulty because it doesn't get to play Clemson. Meanwhile, in the Big 12, a conference that has a round-robin schedule in which everybody plays everybody else, the non-conference carries more weight than it does other places, but mo- the, most, the, most, the biggest weight anybody carries is that Kansas doesn't have to play Kansas. And that's why Kansas always has the most difficult schedule in the Big 12, because all the other nine schools have Kansas weighing their projection down. <laughs> It's funny. We were, um, I was doing, I did a story for 24 seven. I can't remember if I've talked to you guys about this, but I did like the, like five factors that will equate to a team that's going to be better than you think maybe in the coronavirus era coming off of quarantine with them being like continuity, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, no head coaching change, lots of returning starters, returning quarterback experience, uh, and a strong like standing culture, uh, and, you know, I had like 15 teams I thought would, you know, would, would have a pretty good shot at excelling. And there was like four teams that just didn't, didn't check any box. And one of them was Colorado. And it's just sort of funny, like Colorado, like horrible timing on the coaching hire. Yeah. Hires a coach that all of us are a little skeptical on anyway. Uh, no returning talent. Breaks in a new quarterback after uh, a, a quarterback <clears throat> that has been, uh, you know, a, a tenure starter there takes off. Uh, new scheme, everything. Uh, it, and, and oh, by the way, 
toughest schedule in college football. Yeah, it's <laughs> as I've advised Colorado fans on this show before. This is, I mean, watch twenty twenty, but don't get too attached. Just kind of watch it with a with a bit of numbness because it's probably not going to be that fun. Uh, Barton, I clicked on that story on twenty four seven Sports. It's a good read. Would recommend. Um, and I. I nearly said out loud, though definitely said in my mind, as soon as the page loaded on my computer, I said, where's Northwestern? And yeah. sure enough, you made me go <laughs> the bottom, all the way to play. the bottom. <laughs> okay, and I'm telling you guys, they, they might not fit all of my five factors, but just gut play here on culture. Just going with Pat Fitzgerald. Um, North, like, Northwestern, by the way, has the 60th highest projected difficulty. 3.92% above the average. Bad average. Uh, who is the who is the con- like true contenders on the uh, on either end? Like a a team that is a conference or national championship contender that stands out on the tougher end and then and then one or two teams that are also on the easier end. Uh I will I mean in the, at the on the tougher end, I mentioned USC. If we want to consider them, they're fourth yeah. overall. College football playoff contender, duh. Yeah. Michigan, if we want to consider them, is ninth. Mm. Texas is eleventh. Oregon is twelfth. Notre Dame is fourteenth. And then you've got you got to go further down. You'll find Alabama of the traditional title contenders. They project to have the most difficult path in that they're thirtieth. But again, Alabama, like Clemson and Ohio State, they're always at a disadvantage because they don't get to play themselves. So it hurts their overall projection. On the other end of it, uh, I will I'm say getting, that I'm getting my pen and paper out for this one. Syracuse, this is, this this is where there's some value here. Syracuse has the worst or the easiest. I where I got to figure. It's it so is. natural just use best or worse. But yeah. Syracuse has the easiest projection of any Power 5 team in that they're 6.4% below the average, but they're 82nd overall, which kind of gives you an idea of the Power 5 and the strength that it has. But here's where you here's where you're going to get here's where you want to start taking notes, Martin. Florida is 72nd and it has a schedule that is 0.85% below average. So it's just below average, but that's very low for the mo- in relation to the Power 5. And just ahead of them at 71st is Clemson because mm. Clemson has to play the ACC, but it doesn't have to play Clemson. Nor is there like a Texas A&M on the schedule this year to kind of provide that certain weight. So those are the two contenders that are really what you would consider at the bottom as far rattle as who off are. Few, rattle off a few of the other uh, lower end teams. Uh, I will go. F- OK, well, Virginia Tech has the second easiest power five. Then they're ranked 77th. At 74th is Arizona State, dark horse in the Pac-12 South. Mm. 73rd is Illinois, thanks in large part to a ridiculously easy non-conference schedule. Uh, Utah's 67th. Virginia's 64th. Northwestern is 60th. I told you that. Oklahoma State is 59th. Texas A&M is 57th overall. Georgia, 51st. And Ohio State, 44th, and Penn State just ahead of them at 43rd, and a couple spots ahead of them in 41st is LSU. So they're pretty much right in the middle of the Power 5 group. The Oklahoma State ranking, is that near the easier side in the Big 12? Oh, it is far and away the easiest schedule in the Big 12. Mm, that is so far good. Far and away. The next, lowest ranked, the next lowest ranked Big 12 team is Kansas State at 38th. I am drunk on Oklahoma State. <laughs> I am wasted on Oklahoma State. I'm telling you. 
yeah, as as I mentioned earlier, it's when it comes to the Big Twelve. Like since everybody plays everybody, you, you get like you know that kind of their conference schedules are all equal for the most part. Although there are differences in the fact that half the conference plays five home games and half plays five road games, and then depending on where your buys are, it could have an impact. But Oklahoma State's non-conference is what really gets them in that they've got Oregon State, which we all are big fans of to lead off the season. It's just while well, Oregon State improved last year, its longer history does not give it a lot of weight. So maybe that's a game that will carry more weight in actuality once the season begins and finishes. But right now, it doesn't carry a whole lot. And its other two non-con games are Tulsa and Western Illinois, which don't do anything. So, go ahead. I was going to say, between Tom's critiquing of Jamie Newman's accuracy and his uh, alerting us to Florida's... what seventy second easiest schedule in college football? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just you, we're we're starting to have a little bit of a of 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 a pod shift. Listen, if Florida wins the East, we all know it's going to be because of that easy ass schedule it played. They were too scared to play it. <laughs> Georgia got beat up. Georgia yeah. got too beat up. Georgia was playing real teams. Florida's out here playing, you know, Big Ten schedule. The Nothing would be more Georgia Homer of us than to use that Florida strength of schedule ranking as the reason to say why Georgia, Alabama, why Georgia got hosed. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Dogs had to go to Tuscaloosa to play Alabama. Florida, Florida just goes to play Florida State. Come on, man. Florida State ain't nothing. Hey, Bob Bowden ain't on that sideline. That's psh, cupcakes. <laughs> cupcakes. Um, any any other like conference wide trends that stand out when you were looking at it? Like maybe uh, a group of five conference that stood out with particularly strong schedules, power five conferences on the stronger weekend. Any other uh, notables there? I would say of the of the group of five, the American has the strongest overall schedule. Although Conference USA is pretty strong at the top. It's just well, actually, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I was looking at the wrong number there. Uh, no, American is much is probably by far and away the toughest projected strength of schedules. Although UCF has the easiest in the American mm. by far. And I will say uh, shout out to BYU, which I'm not doing a post on independence, but BYU, you are the second highest, most difficult schedule in the country. You, you finished second behind Colorado and just ahead of Michigan state who was in third, because if you look at BYU schedule, man, there's there there's two ways independence can go. You could be Notre Dame and BYU and schedule a bunch of, you know, power five teams and you know local group of five teams. Or you could be like Yukon, Liberty, and New Mexico State, who have the three easiest projections and are all independent schools. And then Army, not too far behind them, another independent school. But BYU, it has its game against uh North Alabama late in the season. But if you go through, it's not so much the top range of what they play. It's just every week they're playing a respectable team. It goes at Utah, Michigan state at Arizona state at Minnesota, Utah state, Missouri, Houston at Northern Illinois at Boise state at or home versus San Diego state. And then you finish at Stanford. So there really aren't any very like huge weak spots outside of that North Alabama. And a lot of the time, just avoiding those too many of those bottom tier teams is going to put your projection a lot because everybody plays those bottom tier teams for the most part. So 
if you're like Texas A&M fans last year were just all over my butt for Texas A&M's projection because it finished 24th overall. But, you know, Texas A&M was playing Georgia. It was playing Clemson. It was playing Alabama. And they were like, how can you be playing that schedule and have a 24th overall? It's like, well, because you were also playing UTSA, UTEP and, you know, Incarnate Word or whoever it was. So it's kind of like if you're in school and you get an A on three tests and an F on the other three tests, you're going to get a C. So when you're BYU and there's no bottoming out of your schedule from week in and week out, it's going to really up your projection. That sounded like college for me. <laughs> it worked, didn't it? Hey, C's a get em. Um, Yeah, good stuff. Go, go. It's split up by conference on CBSSports.com. Many of them are already out. A couple more rolling out this week. Uh, make sure you head on over there to get them. Uh, we've been running a minute. You guys cool if uh, we push mailbag maybe to uh, Thursday's episode? Yeah. All right, cool. If you want to get in the mailbag, please jump in there. Five-star review. Uh, leave your mailbag question in there. We'll add it. We've had some good ones, and I want to make sure that uh, we've got we, – we give them enough time to, to really breathe and, uh, and get some good conversation in around them. So go ahead and uh, head on over there. Add your question to the mailbag. See if it, uh, see if it makes the cut for Thursday's show. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to the Nothing Personal with David Sampson podcast. Do me a favor and blink, please. Did you blink? That's how fast the Major League Baseball season went in 2020. The postseason is already upon us. Whether it's baseball news, you want NFL, college football, water polo, chess, movies. If there's a story, we'll have it covered every weekday, five days a week. Just subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever else you find your podcasts. No BS, no soft tosses, no hot takes. You know, it's always business. It's nothing personal.